much happening in this chapter. I mean, there's a lot of, of big moments that we find in Jesus' ministry here. Um, and I want to do justice to it, you know, for sure. But in sitting with these scriptures, you know, for a while, a common thread that I kind of, I, I began to see is really, really this chapter is about faith um, or lack of faith. And uh, there's a lot of kind of back and forth. Um, I did not come up with a title. Is that what you guys left with? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I sent, I sent Josh a title. It was Mark 6, but he, yeah, he, he put that up there. So I'm not clever, which... It's better, it's, it's better that way. Yes, exactly. So, all right. You obviously spent your time doing other things. Yes, I did. I've, I've been I've been making my way through the Psych series. I don't know if you guys watched that at all. But, but so good, isn't it? I would study for a while, then interject an episode of that, and it was very. It worked out great. But um, yeah. So I mean, yeah. So faith, you know, it's really what we're looking at here. But let let's start. And um, I know that Jason likes to, and I think this is a good way of doing it too, is to kind of read through the whole chapter first. And just uh, so we can all kind of be on the same page of what we're looking at. And then, and then we'll start working our way through it. Um, but let's start here in Mark chapter 6. And it starts saying that, uh, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing, hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. And he called the twelve to himself, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals, and not to put on two tunics. Also he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it, it is Elijah. And others said, it is, a, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, This is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. These people are, these people are, are TV-worthy, for sure. <laughs> uh, because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles and high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter uh, herself came in and danced and pleased Herod, and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Uh, sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught, and he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while. 
for there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a desert, a deserted place in, a, in the boat, and uh, sorry, and they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. And when the day was far, now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, There is a deserted place, and this is the deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages, and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread, and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found... And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit in groups on the green grass. Then they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed, and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about five thousand men. Immediately, Mark loves this word, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. And when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region, and began to carry, out, carry about on beds those who were sick, and wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. So you can see there's a lot. Yay. A lot happening. <laughs> Amen. Let's pray. Yeah, that'll be the end of today. <laughs> go, and go and meditate on these things. Yeah, exactly. No, let's pray real quick, though. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, Father. We thank you, uh, Jesus, for your example. We thank you that you are our teacher, our brother, our friend, our savior. Uh, you have so many roles. We just need you, Jesus. And so we pray for this time as we open your word and we work through your scripture, Lord, that you just speak to our hearts um, and speak to our minds, that, uh, that we cannot be distracted by, you know, so many things that we have going on in our lives, Lord, just to empty ourselves in this moment and just really to um, take this time to, together, as the body, just enjoy your word, Father, and to, uh, to learn from it, that we can uh, be, be changed more and more into your appearance, Jesus, to be like you. We thank you for loving us, and we thank you for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, a lot happening, right? It's an exciting uh, section of Scripture. But uh, let's just go ahead and dig into the first um, six verses. Uh, in verse 1, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. So in, in Mark chapter 5, which you guys uh, covered last week, um, we know that they were um, around the area of Capernaum, which was, you know, Jesus is kind of like his home base. Uh, for ministry at that time, and uh, for, especially for going in and around the area of the Galilee, it seems like, you know, in every other chapter they're they're in a boat going across the Galilee to to other areas and all that. But um, we see that at uh, this time um, they're heading to. He came to his own country, and we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but that he lived most of his life in Nazareth. You know, that's where he grew up, and so he considered that to be like his hometown. You know. And we also see that, uh, that in force, you know, that the entire group of disciples are going with Jesus. Uh, with the last miracle that, we, that we, you guys witnessed in chapter 5 at Jairus' house, uh, it was only the, um, the inner three. You know, Jesus' 
closest homeboys that were with him for that miracle. And, um, and I think that's part of what kind of, that's such a beautiful, a beautiful story, you know, that healing of that little girl and bringing her back to life. And, and some translations, they say that Jesus said to her, little lamb, you know, or, or little girl arise and just this really intimate moment. And you can understand why maybe all the disciples were not piled in there with this, with this child that was being raised from the dead and her mother and her father. Um, and so it's this really beautiful picture there. But we see here that, that now the entirety of them are heading to Nazareth. And uh, Nazareth's about a day's journey from Capernaum, so it wouldn't take long to get there. Everything, um, if you've ever been to Israel, you realize just how close everything really is for the most part. I was a little shocked about it, you know, and growing up and, and hearing all these stories and everything seems so far and so big and so huge. And it's like within 10 or 15 minutes, wow, okay, we're at this other in, like just super important location in, in biblical history, you know. And, and so about a day's journey is what it took. And then in verses 2 and 3, it says, you know, And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this that which was given to him? That such mighty works are performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And this is their conclusion. So they were offended at him, you know. And when the Sabbath comes, I mean, this is what Jesus does, right? This is, this is part of his, his work, part of his reason for coming, is to teach the people about God, um, who God is, and uh, what God expects of us. And, and, you know, and there was so much misinformation and so much twisting of, of God's truth at that time. And I love to see the same pattern repeated, you know, in the epistles and the book of Acts, that as these men would travel to the cities, they would more often than not... As soon as the Sabbath hit, they were teaching in there, you know. And it's interesting to me because, you know, here <laughs> you guys meet in a synagogue as well. And we are teaching God's Word in a synagogue here today. It's, it's just, I don't know, it's pretty neat, I think. I'm also really scared of what's in that box back there, but... Um, don't open it. I don't open it, yeah. I did open it, and there's like a little curtain in there, but I was, I was afraid to move the curtain, so I didn't do that. I don't know what's back there, but... I was afraid my tattoos might burn off my arms. But, um, that's what it is, yes. Indiana Jones, exactly, you know. So, but in many hearing him, you know, they were astonished. And I mean, Jesus had been astonishing folks since he came on the scene, you know. I mean, and, and why? Obviously, there was the miracles that he was doing, the physical healings, the casting out of demons. But, but more often than that, what preceded these miracles, these acts that he was physically doing, was the way that Jesus spoke. You know, he spoke with such authority that um, they had never come across that. And why that is, because the rabbis and the, re the religious leaders of the time, you know, they could study God's word. They could study the writings of other rabbis. And so when they spoke in the temple and when they, when the, in the synagogue, when they would teach, it was really just a collected group of human wisdom, the best that they could possibly understand. And so when Jesus came... And he spoke with such authority because he is God and he is revealing the things of God and disentangling the information that these people had filled themselves with. And um, it was amazing. And so, yeah, one of my favorite stories, the incidences of this is um, it's found in John chapter 7. And it's when the Pharisees at this point decided like, all right, we're just going to send some officers and we're going to arrest Jesus. And so they send these guys and they come back empty handed. Right. And, and the Pharisees are super upset about it. And they're like, where the heck is Jesus? You were supposed to arrest him. And all they could say was, we just, we never, we never heard a dude talk like that before. You know, that, that was their only excuse that they could give was we just, we never heard a man speak like that before. And so this passage starts out, yes, I mean, these people are amazed at, wow, what, what an amazing thing that this guy Jesus is teaching here. This guy that we know, we know his family, we know, you know, we, we grew up with him. And they were astonished, you know, saying three things, you know, where did this man get these things? What wisdom is this which is given to him? And that such mighty works were performed by his hands. Sorry, it just blanked out on me. This is what Josh was talking about. He told me. He's like, man, he's like, I always use paper. It's my first time teaching from my iPad. I'm a little nervous about that too. Holy Spirit will just have to take over. Or Jason. But um, <clears throat> anyway. So yeah, I mean, where do you get these things? Uh, from God the Father, you know, the, what wisdom is this? It's godly wisdom. Um, and, and how does he do these mighty works? Through the power of God the Father, you know. And these things, 
they go on in verse three, you know, to, to explain like, is this not the carpenter? And so, you know, for me, I was thinking about, well, you know, we have the power of retrospect, you know, and, and the entire, the entirety of God's word that we can look at it and go, well, yeah, of course. I mean, like, this is Jesus, you know? Yeah. But these people, I tried to kind of give them a break, but then I, I realized that there, this was not the first time that he had been to Nazareth. Um, and, and spoken to these people. It's not the first time that he had returned during his ministry to his hometown, to, uh, to some of the people that were probably nearest and dearest to his heart. And so in Luke chapter 4, we find that Jesus comes to Nazareth, and um, this is a previous trip that he made there. And he reads a prophecy in the synagogue from the book of Isaiah, and the people, they ultimately lose their minds and try to throw him off a cliff. And it's, it's one of my favorite verses, too, at the very end of that passage. It says that <clears throat> they're all freaking out and they want to kill him and throw him off his cliff. And then Jesus just passes, passes through them and goes on his way. You know, it's like, nah, man, you're not going to, you're not going to kill Jesus. You know, before. Anyway, it's pretty cool though. But in reading this prophecy, you know, Jesus, he was revealing his true self, you know, to, to the people in his hometown. You know, this, uh, this carpenter's son is, is not, not who he was ultimately. And in Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 17 through 22, uh, it says that he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And of course, I mean, like, this is not random occurrence. You know, we know this. This is something that God orchestrated at that moment for him to reveal himself. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's a beautiful passage of what Jesus came to do, you know, his, what his work was to be here on the earth. And then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded of his mouth. And we're like, man, this sounds great. Like, these guys are really being impacted here. And they said, is this, wait, wait a second, is this not Joseph's son? And then from there, basically what we find in our current text occurs there as well. And they're like, no, 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 this guy, this, this can't be right, you know. And, and then Jesus speaks with them and then it ends up at the point where they're trying to kill him and throw him off a cliff. So this is his second time coming back to Nazareth. It's like a second chance, you know? It's actually a really, it's a really sad occurrence for us to look at. And we find in Jesus' response in our current encounter here in Nazareth, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, in his own house. And it says that now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. And a prophet's not without honor. We see throughout the Gospels and in earlier chapters of Mark that there are people who, because of their belief and their faith, that Jesus is able to do these miraculous things in their lives. And their lives are changed. Um, and so a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. I heard one teacher speaking on this scripture, you know, he used the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. And um, I was studying at, uh, at Whole Foods the other day because they have really good food. And, you know, if you hang out there for a while, it's like you can, you can justify getting like, you know, a snack, but then also maybe some dinner and then there's coffee and they have a lot of really good stuff. <clears throat> I'd recommend it. But I was watching couples in the parking lot walking and, uh, you know, sadly, more often than not, it was like, you could kind of tell the couples who had been together longer because the distance between them was like further and further as they were making their way through the parking lot, you know? And more often than not, it's like the dude just kind of plowing his way down the aisle or whatever, and like the poor lady behind with the shopping cart is just kind of making her way down there, you know, whatever. And I, and I started thinking about this familiarity breeds contempt, you know? And <clears throat> the people of Nazareth, they had grown up with Jesus, you know? Maybe they had furniture in their house or, or walls that were repaired or, or fixed by, by Jesus and Joseph. And they knew his family. I mean, they're, they're literally listing out. And of course, you know, in Bible times, they didn't list out the women. But, you know, unfortunately, that's, sorry, ladies. Jesus' sisters, we don't get to know their names. But in heaven, we will. So it's all equal footing there. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, they, they list out so many names of Jesus' brothers. They knew, they knew these people, right? And there was a familiarity there. And they probably knew everything there was to know about Jesus. You know, they knew he didn't come from this long line of rabbis. Um, they knew that he had never attended, like, you know, the religious schools that would somehow inform him to be able to teach the way that he did. Um, he was basically a blue-collar worker, you know, from this tiny town in the Galilee area. And we see in, in quoted in the Gospels, you know, this, this quote of, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I just picture Nazareth being kind of like, Amy and I, we lived in Lloyd for a while, which is in between here and Monticello, you know, and it's like, that's like, I figure like that's what Nazareth had to be, right? I mean, like these people, every appliance they've ever owned is in their front yard once it stops working. It's like, they're not going to pay somebody to haul this thing off, you know, or they're not going to have to, whatever. And some of them are living like literally right across the street from the dump because we had a dump, you know, right in the area. And I'm like, man, you can't get your appliance like over to there. You know, they're burning garbage in their front yard or there's... No children running around half clothed with like you know pit bulls everywhere and everything. like this is Nazareth. I really believe like your mail is not going to make it to you in Nazareth, you know. Um, and so yeah, what I mean this and this is what God chose for His Son, who was going to change everything. Jesus was here to change everything. The Savior of the world to come and be born in Galilee, you know, in Na uh, in Bethlehem, but but to be raised in Nazareth and to be known as a Nazarene, which also fulfilled prophecy as well but and so we're told that he could do no mighty work there um and we know that it's not that it's not that jesus was not able to but because of the hard-heartedness and the unbelief of the people there he did not do any mighty works there well sort of and that's why i love you know it's almost like i feel like well jesus he just can't help himself you know it says that you know that and we see later in the chapter he was also moved by compassion, but we're told in the latter latter parts of verse five that you know he did he did heal a few sick people. You know, it's almost like he just can't he just can't not do something. You know, but it also makes me think about the fact that there's always a remnant. You know, even even in the Old Testament and throughout all of Scripture, you know, God always there's always a remnant of folks. You know, and that and that's exciting to me to see that you know even then it's like you know he's like all right well there's a few folks here I can I can I can heal them because of their their belief and and you know. And so the section finishes out in verse 6 saying that he marveled because of their unbelief. And then, and then he just moved on, you know. The second time in Nazareth, trying to really make it, you know, stick there. Like, man, like, this, is, this is who I am. Like, I've, I've come here to, to change. You know, we, we see in the beginning of Mark that his whole beginning of his ministry is, is that he's uh, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand and, and telling the people to repent. Basically saying, like, look, nothing is ever going to be the same again. And, and it's a, it's a, a transformation that's going to happen from the inside out. And this is where, you know, people were so confused about. But I think about myself, you know, looking at this account, because I grew up in church my whole life. My whole life I grew up in church. And I am uh, unbelievably familiar with Jesus. You know, I know all the stories, the verses, the answers. The answers are always usually either Jesus, God, or the Holy Spirit. You cannot go wrong. If you say those things, I found out from second grade on, you know, that's, that's pretty much the answers. But I definitely had periods in my life, you know, where faith, my faith was tested. And sometimes it led to unbelief and, and even contempt. I can remember um, times when I was younger that I would think, man, my life would be so much easier if I wasn't a Christian. Which is ultimately saying, like, my life would be so much easier without Jesus, you know. And there was definitely, um, you know, some contempt there, I think. Maybe even offense at the fact that I was stuck in this pattern of being raised in the church and this is, this is culturally who I am, you know. I, I guess I figured that I, I'd had my fill of Jesus and I was ready for something else, you know. And I think that I see that in a lot of young people's hearts and minds who are raised in the church, you know. Um, I've heard it said that, you know, you graduate high school, you graduate church. And it's, it's sad, you know. I've also heard people say, you know, we're one generation away from the church going away forever. But we know that Jesus says, I mean, that hell will never prevail against his church. So I'm not, I'm not worried that, you know, like, okay, we've got like four high schoolers here. And if they, don't, if they don't stay in church, man, like, you know, the future of the church is we're in trouble, you know. I mean, God, God is sovereign. But it is, it is super sad to think that, yeah, I mean, being raised in something, that it can become so dull and monotonous in our lives, so familiar that it's even offensive, you know? Because we know the name of Jesus is offensive to the world. 
And so to be influenced by the world and to look around you and to have people that you surround yourself with, which I did as a young person, um, Jesus was not, would not have been a popular subject for me to uh, discuss with them, you know. And I thought, man, it would just be easier not to have to deal with that, you know. But if I look back as an adult, I think easier, easier than what, you know. Life is hard enough, but life without the truth and, and of a relationship with Jesus, I can't, I can't imagine how the world day in and day out does it, you know. My dad had a childhood friend, um, and uh, his son's actually who I get tattoos from. But um, anyway, uh, his dad, yeah, his dad, um, my dad would have these conversations with him over the years, and it's almost like he would be, he'd be so close to uh, relenting and, and to uh, turning over, you know, to, to Christ his life, and and then he would just at the last moment, it was almost like he just couldn't, he just couldn't do it, you know, the struggle to to re- fully realize or an unwillingness to submit to to Christ's authority, and and I think that um, the work of the Holy Spirit in drawing people and, and trying to reveal to them and and all that is is a hard work that the Holy Spirit has ahead of him because we're so adamant about our own authority, you know. But he called my dad one time, and his sister was dying, and uh, and he was crying on the phone, and you know my dad asked him, well, you know, what can we do? You know, I, I can pray for you guys, you know, and, and and this guy's response was, well, you know, it's okay because I've I've been I've been thinking as many positive thoughts as I can and sending them her way. You know, what the heck does that mean? It's ridiculous, right? But it's also very, very, very sad. And so life without Jesus is not better or easier in any way, you know? The, this, this younger version of myself thinking these thoughts, it's, it's ridiculous, you know? But there is a cost, absolutely, you know? There is, a, uh, there is a sacrifice that's required. And Jesus came to teach us about God the Father, to redeem us from our sin, to save us from the wrath of this holy and perfect God. And growing up in churches, you know... Um, these stories can become so familiar with Jesus that it can dull this message. Um, it can lose its power in our lives or even, even become offensive to us. And these, these folks in Nazareth, um, you know, it's hard to hang on to the gravity of just what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. You know, and I, I pray a lot for myself, like, Lord, please just make, make real your sacrifice to me. Um, I know there's no way I can possibly comprehend what it was like for Jesus to be separated from the Father. You know, the pain of that beyond the physical torture, beyond the, you know, those are things that we can, we can have an understanding of maybe. But this idea of Jesus being separated from the Father and that sacrifice, you know. So I pray for, I pray that it's made real to me, you know. Let's move on, Mark 6, 7 through 13. Um, and so we see that he called the twelve to himself and he began to send them out two by two. Uh, and he gave them power over unclean spirits which is amazing. And he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and to put on, and not to put on two tunics. But also he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. And assuredly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so we have this major contrast here. Um, We go from one account that ends with Jesus marveling at the unbelief of these people in Nazareth to him sending the twelve on this mission that requires uh, an unbelievable amount of faith on their part. And so I picture the scene of Christ calling the twelve to him and then, I don't know how this works or, or whatever, but somehow empowering them to now have this power over unclean spirits and everyone being like, man, like, I don't know if they could feel it or if it was just like they just, they believed. And so they just like, okay, we're going to go and do this thing. But I imagine them just looking at each other being like, man, this is freaking awesome. We're going to go cast out demons. I mean, we know the personalities of some of these guys and you know, they were, they were stoked. Um, I imagine Peter was just like, trying to cast demons out of the dudes around him. And it's like, whoa, dude, like, these guys are okay. 
But then, you know, Jesus starts to give the parameters of the mission, and I can kind of see maybe their faces starting to fall a little bit. He says, take nothing except a staff. You know, no bag, no copper in their money belts. They can wear sandals, thank you, Jesus, but only one tunic, you know, one pair of clothes. And I can imagine, you know, the smile starting to fade at this point, and they're starting to think like, oh, man, like, hey, this is going to be, this is going to be hard. Like, and so also he said to them, in whatever place you enter, you know, the house to stay there till you depart from that place. And I feel like it's kind of like the, if you get a better offer, dude, just like, you know, stick where you're at, you know, like be grateful for the hospitality you're being shown and, um, and don't worry too much about it. And he tells them to, to, you know, shake the dust off your feet. And I don't know, it just makes me think of like, you know, telling someone to go kick rocks, you know, or whatever, like, but, uh, but as a testimony against them, you know, and a symbol towards them that, I mean, you don't even want to take the dust of that place with you. Um, but then Jesus makes like this super intense statement, you know, assuredly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, of all the cities for Jesus to list, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, two of the most unholy, perverse cities who literally get wiped off the face of the earth. Um fire called down and destroys this place and he says that if these cities will not receive them nor hear their teaching that they face a harsher judgment than even these cities who were who faced um god's wrath you know was poured out on these cities and so the first thing that i see here is that you know jesus he empowers them um and then he provides them with just this such simplicity in the logistics of this mission that they're sent out on, you know. Take nothing with you. Depend and rely on the hospitality of people. And we all know, I mean, ultimately people suck, you know. <laughs> that's, that's just, we know that. And so I'm sure in their minds they're like, wow, okay, like we're about to go do this super weird thing. Tell these people to repent. And then, you know, we've been given this power to cast out demons. We've seen kind of all along how this has been going for Jesus as he's been doing these things. And so now, you know, they're not to be encumbered by these material possessions or focus on comfort. And I was thinking about, you know, like on mission trips, I've definitely seen folks who uh, have packed like they were moving into a new house. You know, it's like they even have like some, some kind of appliances with them, you know, and it's like, man, like this is crazy. And then I've also seen dudes who, you know, they have like a small backpack and like a toothbrush and like a skateboard you know and then like a length of like rope and you're like what's the rope for man and like like i don't know i just you know i figured this might come in handy you know it's like okay so but we see i think jesus was definitely setting the disciples up here you know for a great test of their faith um in this moment and i don't know if it was like you know the lord was like okay we just came out of nazareth and man that was tough those people's hearts were super hard and here's an opportunity for me with these men to really pour into them and like and give them an opportunity and then in verse 12, you know, we see the fruits of their faith in Jesus' empowerment. So they went out and they preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And it's such a powerful contrast because many demons were cast out and many who were sick were healed. And we saw in Nazareth that, that Christ, he could heal a few folks, you know, who were sick because of the hard-heartedness and the unbelief of the people there. And so because of the faith of the disciples, first of all, well, first of all, the empowering of Jesus in their lives. And then the faith of the disciples, they were able to go out into these cities and areas, and we don't hear any stories of them having to shake the dust off their feet. You know, that's not told to us in Mark. Maybe they did in some areas. I think it's probably inevitable that in some areas that was the case. But ultimately they had to trust, you know, that the Lord was going to take care of them. And many demons were cast out. Many who were sick were healed. And most importantly, many heard the gospel message of repentance, you know. And so their obedience there is just awesome to see. And so we're given like a little a little uh, deviation here, and we as we roll into the story of, of John the Baptist. But then we come back and we see when the disciples are able to meet back up with Jesus after this. So we'll we'll, we'll kind of work our way through this real quick through uh, fourteen through twenty nine. We're not gonna we're not gonna get so much into this. Um, definitely a super gruesome story. Uh, definitely telltale of you know. The kind of folks who were in charge and what what leadership looked like in that at that time, um, and there's some definitely some things in here for us to focus on uh, before we move on. But um, and so we read through the story. Now King Herod, you know, heard of this. I love this though because um, you know he heard about Jesus and he's like, oh, I, it's John the Baptist. I know it is. 
And like these other dudes, are like, no, nah, it's Elijah, or it's just a prophet, man. It's just a prophet. And Herod's like, no, <laughs> this is John the Baptist. I know it is. He's back from the dead, and he's coming for me. Uh, because he killed him, he's back to haunt me. You know, basically, it makes me think of that, the Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. You know, I think that it's been a while since I've read it, but basically, the main character murders somebody, buries them under their house, and he feels like he can. He's driven mad, thinking he can hear their heartbeat. You know, I feel like Herod's like, oh man, like he's coming for me. I know he is. John the Baptist. But the Herods were a wild bunch, you know? I mean, I feel like they, they should have their own reality show called The Herods, right? <laughs> but seriously, I mean, th these were men and women who were legally in charge. They were placed there by the Roman authority. Obviously, Rome is, is fully uh, in charge. And I mean, the Jewish people, they, they viewed themselves as being enslaved by the Romans. And, but uh, the Herods were put in place they love that name too, man. Herod, Herodias, her daughter's name's Herodias. And his brother's name's like Philip, so it's like, well, okay, you know. I don't know. But uh, but I guess he was a Herod too, so he probably went by Herod as well. But but they were ultimately put in charge, and I mean, it just gives us insight to how corrupt and perverse they were, you know. And we look around the world today, and not a, not a whole lot's changed. You know, there are just some crazy atrocities that we can, that we can, if we dig, I mean, we don't have to dig very far. It's almost like we're inundated with it in the news, you know. But what I love is this picture painted of John, you know, that he stands up directly and rebukes the most powerful man in the region. I mean, this is John the Baptist. This dude eats locusts. He's dressed in camel hair. I mean, he just, he's just a rad, gnarly guy, you know. And so, of course he did. You know, he just like stood up and was like, you can't marry your brother's wife, man. Like, that's, that's not, that's not the right thing to do. And you know, at this point, Herod's got nobody speaking truth into his life. And so it's amazing to see this picture of, of the effects that we can have. You know, if we stand up for what is right, even in small ways, we can speak truth into people's lives. And God will give us those opportunities. And the crazy part is, is that Herod listens to him. Now, he doesn't do anything about it, you know, and because his wife's upset, he throws John in jail. But he won't kill him, you know, and it says that he hangs out with him. Like, like Herod goes and, and he's like, man, like, Again, I think this is probably one of those situations where it's like, man, I've never really had anybody talk to me this way, you know? And he, it's almost like he recognizes the truth, and I feel like, man, if John had had more time with Herod, who knows what would have happened, you know? Obviously, God is sovereign. He had his plan here, and, uh, and John's time comes to an end in a terrible, terrible way. And we witness this, you know, perverse dance. That's the whole idea there is that the daughter danced, and it pleased Herod and his dudes that were all there. And so we can, you know, don't use your imagination, but, you know, we can, we can kind of understand what's being, what's being said there. Um, you know, and this is his, like, stepdaughter slash niece, you know, weird family dynamics. And he's drunken, and he promises her, you know, all this, up to half my land, which is just ridiculous. And, and so, yeah, and so through that we see that John is, is beheaded, and his head is carried around on a platter, you know. It's just craziness. And then his disciples collect and bury his body, you know. And so that's that's the Herods. And then we and then we move we jump right back into it's almost like a, just this caveat here. And then we jump right back into and I appreciate this though as we work our way through, because we know that uh a big portion of the Bible is is the is the fact that it's it's a history book, you know. And so as Mark and Peter are working their way through this narrative of, of Christ's work and the things that were going on at that time. At that time, John the Baptist was beheaded. So it's like, well, we've got to take some time and address that as well. It's a big deal. So now we move back to right where the disciples have finished ministering. And in Mark verses, uh, Mark 6, 30 through 44, it starts out that when, then when the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught, and I just, can you imagine the excitement of these men, you know, when, when they hook back up with Jesus and they're all talking over one another, you know, the shared joy of success of lives being changed and needs being met of faith and obedience. Um, I've definitely had moments where it's been tough and I've, I've, I've been obedient to the Lord and the joy that comes from that is, is really inexpressible compared to, to the happiness or the other things in life, you know, that obedience to God. And there's Jesus standing in the midst of them, smiling, you know, knowingly. And I, can, I, I bet he's just, he's proud of these men. He's pleased with them to see their faith and, and the works of faith. And it makes me think of, of Hebrews chapter 11, you know, which is often referred to as the hall of faith. And um, giving the breakdown, of, uh, you know, in that chapter, it gives the breakdown of so many people who came before us and, and their faith. 
And Hebrews 11, 6 states, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. And I used to feel kind of defeated by this verse. because I'm like, man, okay, like I struggle with my faith all the time. And so I don't know how pleasing I am to the Lord. But Paul teaches us in Romans 12, and this is Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. And it's such an important passage of scripture, and it's so empowering and encouraging. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it, our faith, in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And so, I believe that God, being the most real, realist ever, <laughs> you know, who knows our hearts and minds, that he's pleased even when we exhibit the smallest amount of faith, you know? Every step forward that we take on this journey of faith, God is he's pleased with us in that. And so he said to them, you know, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. And I love to see the practicality of Jesus as well, you know? It's like, okay, you guys are coming off this big deal. There's still people everywhere. Everyone's kind of buzzing. No one's had any time to eat. Let's just take let's take a break. Let's go someplace deserted. And let's have some rest. We'll get something to eat. And I love seeing that too. Amy and I were talking about it <clears throat> with Jairus' daughter. Um, that when she was raised from the dead, then Jesus says, well, you know, get her get her something to eat, you know? You know, the practicality of Christ as well. And the practicality of our God who knows our needs, even, even when we don't even realize it. Because I mean, I'm sure the parents are just like, they were freaking out, and it's like, man, like, and then no one thought, like, okay, this, this girl might be, she might be hungry, like, but Jesus is like, let's get her something to eat, all right, you know? And so I, I think the same way, it's like, all right, dudes, like, this is awesome, I'm super happy, and, and we're all super excited about this work that you guys have been doing, but let's, let's take a break, let's go somewhere, someplace quiet where we can just take a rest, you know? But then we see what happens, you know? And we see this so many times in the ministry of Jesus. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot, they ran <laughs> from all the cities. They arrived before them, so they ran fast. And then they came together to him. And I, and I wonder here if some of the disciples were maybe a little put out by this crowd, you know? Here's this opportunity to go and chill, to be with Jesus, to eat some food, to relax. Um, and I can't help but think about the inconvenience of ministry, you know? Ministry is inconvenient. There's no way around it. The cost of discipleship. You know, for us in America, <clears throat> it's sad to say, but I mean, genuinely that is the cost of, of discipleship here in America, is inconvenience. Uh, in other places in the world, it will cost you your life. It will cost you your wife and children. It will cost you so much. But here um, in America, it's hard for us to really count the cost of Christianity. But, you know, and obviously this it's a... This example is small compared to the fact that these men, um, you know, they're feeling inconvenienced here maybe, but one day they will be martyrs, you know. That's the thing that's so crazy about thinking about Jesus and these 12 disciples walking around is that, yes, Jesus pays the ultimate price for us on the cross, and then these men, they follow suit, you know. Not all of them, but they all face persecution that's just super gnarly, you know. And so, yeah, one day they will, they will pay the ultimate cost of what it, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But true, man, true ministry is rarely ever convenient. You know, it's a sacrifice. And then, you know, what's the motivation? And we see this here in Jesus. Um, and I love this, you know, because this is, this, is, this is our Savior. And Jesus, when he came out, he saw the great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd, meaning they didn't know anything. These people are dumb, you know. We are dumb sheep in need of a shepherd and we don't even know it, you know? And do you guys ever get overwhelmed just driving around town? You know, sometimes I get overwhelmed, like at a stoplight looking at the people in traffic or, or 
in a coffee shop or I don't know in a store and all these people and, and I'm one of those people that like I definitely eavesdrop on people's conversations I'm bad about that you know even I'll be at dinner you know and she's like like man it's crazy what this guy's talking about over here you know whatever and she's like what what are you talking about you know I was just I was telling you something you know and I'm like oh I'm sorry it's just you know it's crazy what the dude said to his wife over here you know it's like man what's up with that you know but but I just think about the fact that I mean they, many of them they don't even, they don't even have a clue you know not one clue about the truth of God. And they are truly a sheep in need of a shepherd. I had an opportunity to go <clears throat> to a, a hospital visit. It was a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, a guy that I know who had been kind of loosely dating this girl, who had been doing drugs with her mother, who had a warrant out for her arrest, and then the cops came, and long story short, she hit her inhaler after she'd been doing drugs, and, and she went into cardiac arrest, and then she basically became brain dead. And so I was asked out of the blue to come up there and pray for them, you know, and I'm like, oh man, like this is, I don't I have no idea what to say, you know, and then I roll in and I realize that these people don't have a clue, not even one inkling about who Jesus is, about God, about any form of real truth. I mean, they were just, every person in that room and about 12 or 15 people completely lost. And the father is just crying. He's telling me, I just want to send her off right. I just want to, she was a good girl. I want to send her off right. And I'm like, man, you guys. And so my prayer was a little ambiguous, you know. It's like, Lord, you know this girl. And if at any point in her life she <laughs> came to a saving knowledge of you, it was awkward, you know. But I was just so sad walking out of there and thinking, man. And they were so grateful for me to have to just go and do that awkward prayer and, and, and talk with them for a while, you know. People who are desperate for the truth. Sheep, you know. They don't, they don't know. And we're all sheep. You know, I think about Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 6. Um, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it's such a beautiful passage about our Savior and the work that he has done for us as, as sheep, you know. And so in these moments of compassion, you know, I look, and it's just foreshadowing, you know, when Christ stands over Jerusalem, you know, and he knows, man, the time is coming when, like, the full rejection happens, you know, and ultimately the path that leads him to the cross. And so what does Jesus do when he's moved to compassion with these people? It says, so he began to teach them many things, you know. Because that's what he came to do. They don't know anything. I'm moved to compassion, so I will teach you. I will teach you about God the Father. I will teach you about true love. I will teach you, you know. And then we roll into the story of the 5,000. You know, we've all known this one since we were children. But um, but really the focus here for me this time around is, is, is on the, the faith of the disciples, you know. The contrast we see swinging back again to uh, them coming off this amazing journey of faith they had and the mission work that they did, the lives they saw changed. They're tired, they're hungry, and then you know Jesus is like, man, all right, well, we're going to start teaching these guys. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy bread for themselves. You know, and this is, I feel like it's the human condition, like how quickly our highs become our lows, how quickly we forget the, uh, the moments with Jesus when, when faith has led us into intimacy, 
with him, you know? And I love Jesus' response, you know, because he just goes, well, you give them something to eat. <laughs> and I'm sure, like, you know, the dudes in the back were like, what, what, what did he say? You know, like, they couldn't quite hear. And everyone's like, they said we're supposed to just give them some food to eat, you know? And it's like, well, how the heck are we going to do that? You know, there's a lot of freaking people here. And their faith slips, you know? And so we see what happens when, when faith slips, that Jesus steps in, you know? And an unbelievable miracle occurs in that moment. You know, it says it's the same with us today. We must be dependent on Jesus, you know, when our faith slips. Or to even have faith in the first place. Or to grow our faith. We pretty much just need Jesus all the time. Um, and that's what these people need as well. And, you know, and so, yeah, so this beautiful miracle occurs. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Which we know was a lot more than that. Because it was, it was women and children gathered as well. And, um... He breaks the bread, and he blesses it, and he asks God to bless it, and then he feeds them and feeds them and feeds them, and they have so much left over. And then Mark's favorite word. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray because Jesus probably just needed some time to himself with the Lord at this point. The multitude, the disciples who... You know, coming off this, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if Jesus is disappointed. I know he knows their hearts, you know, like, I mean, does God get disappointed with the frailty that he created us with? Uh, you know, I, I don't think so. Um, but I do think that the opportunities that he provides to us in order for us to, to have faith and grow in that, you know, that maybe there is some level of disappointment. I don't know. I can't pretend to speak for the Lord. But, but anyway, at this point, he, he, just, he just says, you know, look, you guys go across. I'm gonna, I don't know if he even told him what he was going to do, but he's like, I'm going to stick it here and, and, and go up on a mountain and pray. And we so often see in Jesus' ministry that even after the you know, unbelievably long days of ministering and doing miracles and teaching the people and then having to reteach the disciples the things that he taught the people, um, that he will take those moments to be alone with the Father. You know, either when everyone else has gone to bed or before anybody else has gotten up in the mornings, we see this example of Jesus taking this time. And it's, it's evident that prayer is, is a key to his ministry, you know. And then the story continues that now when evening came and the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land, then he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. Now the evening is usually like around, I guess depending on how you look at it, between like 6 and 9 p.m. And then the fourth watch, it says now about the fourth watch of the night, which is around 3 a.m. So these dudes have been working at it for a while struggling to make it across there and then at 3 a.m in the morning you know no big deal jesus sets out across the water like he's just you know i'm just gonna take off across the water jesus you know saw them after praying in the midst of praying you know i don't know but when they saw him walking on the sea you know they supposed it was a ghost and they cried out and yeah i mean yeah i, <laughs> I identify with these guys you know they're tired They've had these crazy long days that, we've, that we just heard about, and they've been, you know, for hours on end, struggling. They're probably delirious with just, you know, and I don't, I don't, still I haven't heard anything. Well, okay, they ate, never mind, they ate with the 5,000, but either way, like, they're just, like, really tired. And so, yeah, I'd be like, man, this guy, what is, what the heck is this dude on the water? This is craziness. Are you seeing this? I'm seeing this, like, you know, and I don't know how long Jesus watched them struggling there in the water, but it seems to me that. He let them go on for a while, you know, to what I would imagine was their breaking point, you know. The point when they were about to give up, that's when Jesus sets out across the sea. And it seems to be that way, sometimes frustratingly so, that only when we are at our weakest, you know, do we feel the, the strong arms of Jesus lifting us up and carrying us. And, and I think a lot of it is, is pride. It's pride, and it's, it's the fact that we operate so hard under our own authority that only when we've relinquished that, only when we've been broken down to that point where we can um, rely on His strength, you know, is, is when we, we get it. And it makes me think of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, And He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, which is a crazy statement anyway. Um, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. And this is counterintuitive to everything we've ever been taught in worldly wisdom. <laughs> when you are at your weakest, you're at your strongest. That doesn't make any sense at all, you know? But what a beautiful and a difficult place for us to rest. In our weakness is when we're in his strength, you know? And so finally in this section, we see the disciples, they marveled at his ability to calm the seas. And it's really... <clears throat> Excuse me, it's relayed to us why in verse 52, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened, you know? And ultimately what they're saying is like, they still did not understand who Jesus was. These men who were the closest to him, you know, who were following his every action, his every word, and they still did not get who Jesus was. Their heart was hardened. And I pray sometimes for God to soften my heart. You know, and then I end up at, at the dang IMAX with my children, and I'm crying over dogs who are saving people, and it's like, <laughs> all right, Lord, this is maybe too soft, you know, like too soft. <laughs> this is embarrassing. And so be careful what you ask for, but, you know, and, and then also, by the way, you know, this is, this is the same occurrence that in other Gospels, you know, we read about. This is when Peter stepped out onto the water, and then when Peter sank in the water. And I don't think it's by accident that Peter just kind of, you know, this part didn't make it into Mark. The one that Peter is dictating, you know. And so, it's just funny to me that, like, you know, Peter's telling the story. And he's like, well, we're going to leave this part out. Right? I'm sure Mark was probably like, well, what about, you know, I heard about that time when you were, you were like, oh, this is not the same time, you know, or whatever. And then just, just move on with it. But it's also funny to see, like, you know, and I don't know, like, if this contrast was on purpose. I mean, obviously everything in God's Word is on purpose, but... But that, you know, when we roll into the last portion of this, this scripture here in verse 53, you know, when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesar and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. You know, it's like disciples had no clue. So I thought it was a ghost on the water. I, I don't know. If, I mean, they, they can really be faulted for that like we talked about. But, but anyway, the, when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. And they ran throughout that hole. They ran. Again, these people are, they are amped. They are running throughout the whole surrounding region, and began to carry out about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered, wherever he entered, into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. What a beautiful statement. As many as touched him, you know, were made well. And so I love that Mark ends this chapter on this big upswing for us, you know. And we see, first of all, these people instantly recognize Jesus. They don't walk or check their schedules or see if maybe they don't have anything else better going on to go and see Jesus, this teacher. They literally run through the whole surrounding region. They run to Jesus when they're sick. And it's implied that with the kind of belief that, we, that you guys saw in chapter 5, where the woman who had the bleeding, she just touched the hem of his garment and power left him. And Jesus like, whoa, who touched me? And the disciples like, this is crazy, man. There are people everywhere. Everyone is literally touching you right now. I'm touching you right now, Jesus. And he's like, no, somebody touched me. You know, the hem of his garment. And so, yeah, that they had this kind of belief that if they could just, if they could get their sick close enough to just even barely just, you know, brush his garment with their hands, that they could be healed. And it says that as many as touched him were made well. And so we have Nazareth with their unbelief. And Jesus could do, he could do no mighty work there, you know. And a few were healed. And then in these villages and towns, as many as who touched Jesus were healed. Awesome belief that was found here, you know. And so my conclusion with this chapter, and I just, I've really grown to love this chapter of Mark, is that life, life is a swing of the pendulum, you know, from faith to faithlessness, back and forth, you know, this roller coaster of faith that we're on. This is the journey. And ultimately, I'm encouraged to see that throughout all the ups and downs in this chapter, you know, we see people who have shown great faith. We see people who have shown no faith. Um, that we have this unchanging, unwavering picture of our God in the person of Jesus. You know? That He remains faithful through it all. And I just want to end on um, some verses from 2 Timothy. And I love these, these verses. It even starts out by saying, this is uh, verses 11 through 13, saying, this is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. This is who God is. This is who we serve. Um, he's faithful. 
So, with that, that is the end. I made it through it. I did it. Through Mark 6. We did it. The Lord did it. I, I did it. Let's, let's. Life's a pendulum. There you go. That's my title. Or I did it. That's my title. Yes. Mark 6, I did it. <clears throat> let's pray, though. Lord, we thank you so much for your words. Lord, the, uh, the hardships, the, um, the seeking to, to be our own authority, God, um, the times where we harden our heart and we have unbelief, and we know that you are faithful through it all. And we're so grateful, Lord, that you are faithful, that you are long-suffering, and that you are merciful, and that you love us. Um, Jesus, we thank you so much for your example.